Hello, everybody, and welcome to this second UK in a Changing Europe Spotlight on the G7 event. On Friday, we talked about what might happen at the G7. Now we've got a communique. Um, we've seen a weekend of our leaders, uh, at least some of them, on the beach at Carbis Bay. We've been spending the weekend talking about the top international threat of sausages traveling across the Irish Sea. But actually, it was very important business to be done at that G7. One was on the global response to the pandemic, but another and possibly even bigger one was whether this event could provide momentum towards the Conference of the Parties that the UK will be hosting, delayed from last year, in November in Glasgow to see whether they can build on the Paris Agreement on climate change. I'm Jill Rutter, I'm a Senior Research Fellow at UK in a Changing Europe. And I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by a genuinely stellar international panel who are going to give us their instant reactions to the G7 and perhaps more usefully tell us what they think needs to happen next in that window that the government has over the next five months between then and now, whether indeed any of this really makes any difference in the longer term of things. Joining us from very sunny Norwich is Andy Jordan, Professor of Environment Policy at the University of East Anglia, from very sunny and rather unpleasantly hot, probably London, is Bernice Lee, founding director of the Hoffman Centre for Sustainable Resource Economy and Research Director of Futures at Chatham House. From Brussels, uh, Elisabetta Cornago. Elisabetta is a research fellow who's just joined the Centre for European Reform. Then we're going much more international. We have, we leave Europe, and we have Johannes Opelenen, uh, who's director and Prince Sultan bin Abdul Aziz, Professor of Energy, Resource and Environment at John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, who's joining us from Arlington, Virginia. And last but absolutely by no means least, because actually in many ways, uh, he's going to bring us a perspective from some of the people who really, really matter in this debate, as opposed to the people who were on the beach at the G7, uh, Navros Dubash. Nav is professor at the Centre of Policy Research, and he's joining us from Delhi. So that's a genuinely huge international panel. We've got an hour and 15 minutes to uh, make some progress. Uh, leaders probably had a bit longer, though I'm not sure how long they really spent on climate change at the weekend. So let's kick off with a very quick round, round the table on where we are now. Andy, they wheeled out David Attenborough, the most treasured of national treasures, for those of you not watching in the UK. Um, but apart from that, what did they really want to achieve at this G7 on climate change? And what did they need to achieve? Um, what do you make of, uh, of where we got to? Well, um, good afternoon, Jill. Good afternoon, everyone else. Um, I think, I think the, the Johnson government really sought to achieve three things. I think, first of all, uh, it was a key aim was to try and revitalize the G7 uh, to make it more relevant to the world. Um, and in particular, to um, overcome some of the struggles that the G G7 has faced over the, over the years in which Trump uh, was uh, the president. I think, secondly, um, it was important for the UK to uh, present the UK as a sort of international uh, wheeler and a dealer um, to sort of emerge from the sort of long shadow that Brexit has cast 
I mean, this really was the first outing for global Britain, really. Um, there'll be another outing later this year when the, uh, the big climate conference in November, COP26, takes place. But thirdly, and focusing really back on climate change, I mean, the real focus here was on responding to the alarming sort of scientific information that's been um, drip feeding into, into the, into the um, delegations and into the um, debates and discussions for many, many years. I mean, just very recently, uh, Antonio Guterres, the, uh, the head of the UN, was referring to this as a make or break year uh, for climate change. And so I think what he was trying to achieve in particular, uh, Boris Johnson, was to uh, identify and to secure agreement on more practical concrete uh, actions that all states can take, particularly in the short to medium term, i.e. between 2020 and 2030, and in particular to deliver uh, some of the financial commitments that the um, richer liberal democracies have promised they would deliver on for many, many years now. Um, Johannes, did the US share that agenda? Um, been a bit of a sense, maybe just my reading, that the US has slightly felt maybe it should be driving this agenda, a lot of diplomacy by John Kerry, uh, the Biden summit on Earth Day. Uh, did they share that UK ambition or do they want something a bit more out of this G7? I think uh, when we look at the, at the United States, uh, it, it's always, always important to remember uh, that uh, it really is, is not a country of one opinion uh, on, on, on these issues. Rather, it's, it's very highly polarized with sort of, let's say, 60% of the country being mostly on board with, with the rest of, uh, of G7 on the importance of climate change. And then about 40% of the country uh, not at all interested uh, in, in these issues. So um, if you were to phrase that question as what did the Biden administration want, I would say that they share uh, most of the top line uh, vision, which is a kind of a net zero world by 2050. And th this was one of the announcements that uh, came out of the, of the G7 summit was the commitment. Well, no, not really commitment, but at least a kind of vision for a uh, net zero world. Um, they also uh, agree on the uh, importance of um, uh, kind of enhancing climate finance, uh, working with, with all the uh, different countries. But the, the challenge that the Biden administration faces is that it has not yet been able to do the domestic, uh, create the domestic policies that it needs uh, to uh, kind of reclaim uh, leadership. So American diplomats are always talking about American leadership. Uh, it's just a kind of a national flaw of, of this country where uh, everything has to be about leadership. And of course, after four years of, uh, of Trump, it's, it's a bit challenging for the United States to claim any kind of leadership in, in a global climate. But right now, the big question really is, will uh, President Biden be able to push through his very ambitious spending plans uh, for low carbon infrastructure, which would really make the United States a leader in this, in, in this area. But we know that in the, in the United States Senate uh, right now, uh, he does not have bipartisan support. He, he doesn't in fact have even the support of his own party uh, uh, with uh, Joe Manchin and others uh, kind of fighting back against his view. So the question then is, he'll, will he be able to use processes like budget reconciliation to ram through some kind of a low carbon infrastructure package. Because if he doesn't, then going into COP26, the United States has very little to go with, right? 
uh, they have not been able to really do anything. It's just all talk. But if he's able to push through something meaningful, then the United States would be in a good position. So that's why I would say that G7 was kind of a practice round, uh, if you will. Uh, we will have to see at COP26 because by then, uh, either the Biden infrastructure plan is a go or it's not. Uh, and, and then we'll really see what's happening in the United States. Yeah, I want to come on to uh, the state of domestic action because it's always quite easy to sign up to very, very ambitious targets particularly if they're long after the shelf life of any serving politician, even ones who are significantly younger than President Biden. Um, Elizabeth, we didn't hear huge amounts about climate from the EU, or maybe that was just those of us that were focused on the other skirmishings between the UK and the EU over the weekend. But Italy has quite an important role to play, doesn't it, both as president of the G20 and chairing the COP preparation meeting in the run-up to Glasgow. So... Do you think the EU, uh, their enforce in Cornwall, would have been quite happy with where this got to and what's in the communique? Yeah, so I think it's, that's an interesting question. As you say, Italy's position is, is quite delicate, sort of being sandwiched between the G7 meeting and then the COP26 with the G20 coming in between. Like they will have a bit of discussions to pick up then, first in July with the, with the climate ministerial and then further on at the, at the leader summit in October. So I think, uh, you know, from, from the perspective of those discussions, uh, on one hand, some steps forward have been taken, notably on, on, on coal, uh, phasing out to a certain extent international uh, investment in, in coal power plants. I think that, that would be seen as a, as a positive step forward from G7 countries. At the same time, I think, you know, the, the reticence at, at putting a, an end date on, on coal power plants domestically is, is mm. something uh, about which I believe G20 partners that are not in G7 are going to be, you know, pointing at in the context of this G20 discussion. So there are some open, open-ended open issues there. And certainly the, the point of climate finance uh, is, is definitely something that uh, I would say did not... Um, has not been has not been unfortunately finding a happy ending as as one well hoped uh, in in the G7 communique. So there is still quite a bit of a gap there to be filled ahead of COP26, and so that again I suspect is going to be quite a hot issue uh, at, at the G20 level. From from the EU perspective, a bit more broadly, um, I, I think you know there are uh, you know as I said some some positive elements there. Uh, I think they probably were were dreaming of trying and curling up a bit of additional support when it comes to carbon pricing as a tool uh, to, to you know, enhance climate action and, and perhaps also convincing a bit more uh, the US as opposed to the merits of uh, border carbon adjustment, but that uh, definitely... So there was, no mention of that in, there was no mention of that in the communique, was there anything? No mention of that. There is an acknowledgement of the risk of carbon leakage. That's, that's as far as it goes. So I guess you know, that's telling us that. Uh, you know, that didn't get much airtime or, you know, at all, it was, it was basically shut down. So that's, that's frozen, I would say, for now. So Nav, um, President Modi from India, I think, joined on the Sunday by Zoom. Um, not sure how much he participated in the climate discussion, but if you're looking at this from the point of view of countries like India, uh, you know, developing countries more generally, does this look like it's a bit of a Western stitch up to say we'll commit to some vague targets, we'll phase out... Uh, support for your development by phasing out uh, support for coal and actually you know you're still talking about trying to cobble together the cash you agreed in Paris so what's in it for us I don't, 
you know, how will this be seen? <laughs> Well, well, thank you, thank you, Jill. I'm delighted to be on this uh, on this uh, uh, on this call in this conversation. Um, well, certainly, you know, sitting in India, I can't presume to speak for the, the rest of the developing world. So I'll talk a little bit about India and maybe extrapolate a bit about about other other parts. Um, I think uh, actually, Elizabeth just uh, uh, put her finger on a couple of the issues, uh, the reasons for cynicism, uh, if you like, and I think there will be some of that. Uh, coming from other uh, from large developing countries, uh, so she talked about the, the the coal story as did you, and indeed the question is all right, fine. You want to phase out financing from your uh, development finance institutes and so on for coal in the developing world, but how about accelerated fail out phase out uh, in the West? Um, and the broader argument, you know, since we've seen over the last decade or so this this keep it in the ground movement, which I think has been incredibly productive. Uh, the, the question arises, well, if you're going to keep a, a portion of your fossil fuels in the ground, the complementary question is, who gets to burn the limited amount that's left? And from a sort of distributive question, uh, it's certainly worth asking whether some other fossil fuel dependent economies like, say, Nigeria and so on and so forth, should have first dibs on, on uh, the amount that should be burned. So that kind of more complex framing, you know, is there is there a broader supply side equity conversation to call certainly doesn't wasn't reflected in this conversation. And I, I think it I think uh, it'll be seen as a as a one sided uh, conversation. The other the other part, of course, is uh, again as Elizabeth said, look this finance story, and as you said. Can we get on with the 100 billion already? In fact, uh, all the estimates that are out there are that we need a lot more money uh, than that. And so yet more words about another five years to get to 100 billion uh, rings a little hollow. So I think there will be that cynicism. Um, I want to bring on another uh, uh, aspect here, which is the net zero target, right? So, so the Biden administration and others have been putting a lot of weight behind the net zero by 2050 uh, uh, as a global uh, um, uh, effort and a global target. And for a while, it was being positioned in a sense as, as kind of the story for, for, for Glasgow. I was actually heartened to see in the Biden administration summit uh, a few weeks ago that the focus had somewhat been diluted and they were talking more about 2030 targets as well. And I think that's actually heartening because 2050 shouldn't just become this pressure valve uh, against doing something uh, in, in the near term. But, the, but, the, but the, the arithmetic of this is that if you want to get to global net zero 2050, and some countries think it'll take us longer than 2050, and certainly in India, that's the conventional wisdom, then some other countries have to do it before 2050. So a net zero by 2050 pledge doesn't actually tell you whether there's going to be any space uh, created in a sense for other countries to do it later. So that's another kind of friction point. Uh, I just want to take a second on the Build Back Better uh, uh, story, which was also part of this uh, part of this uh, um, whole discussion. And I think that actually is intriguing. If that becomes something uh, broader, if there's some money put behind that, uh, and if China actually ends up with some competition for the Belt and Road Initiative, mm -hmm. then I think for the rest of the developing world, you know, that it, it's probably good to have uh, to have uh, various people knocking at the doors and not just the Chinese. Brilliant, because these are some of the questions I want to go into in a bit greater, greater depth. Um, final in the first round, Bernice, um, I know you can't mind meld the Chinese government and channel what they're thinking, but you do look at some of these other countries. If you look particularly at China, who we know are now one of the two major emitters, need to be there. What will they have been making of the G7. A lot of it was about China 
Anyway, more if you read the readouts from the Biden administration, if you read the readouts from the British government. But uh, but what will they have made of uh, this summit, do you think? Well, thank you very much, Jill. And thank you for highlighting the fact that by no means I know how to read tea leaves in Beijing whatsoever. But what we do know is what they have said so far. And what we can also conjecture is what they're likely to be thinking. So first of all, let's start by saying that the only reaction we've heard so far from the Chinese embassy in London, and if there are others that I missed, I'm sorry to the audience, is the fact that they reiterated how a small group of countries shouldn't be making decisions for others. So pretty typical stuff. And the second thing we also know is that over the last week, there have been lots of traveling by the Chinese foreign minister in different parts of ASEAN country, or, or posing at least with different ASEAN ministers, demonstrating obviously that there are relationships to be kept in relationships that are important to China too. But overall, and I would like to quote my dear friend and mentor, Lohong Stubiana, who reacted to the G7, basically saying that this is ultimately a plan about a plan. So the question is, how do you react to what is ultimately a plan about a plan? So I have a couple of things I want to say about that. First of all, I think that while it is easy to knock a lot of the emptiness or the lack of dates associated with some of the commitments or some of the iterations or declarations that was made in Cornwall, but what I think is really helpful, and this is important not only for China, but for the rest of the world, is that it has laid down some tracks we know that has to be filled. So for example, others have already mentioned the whole idea that while we have now seen much more back turning on overseas coal finance, and this is certainly an area that China is gonna be the last, last one standing in terms of major, even Asian financiers, because both South Korea and Japan have already committed to ending overseas co-finance in some form. So China accepted the last one standing. Now we know that we haven't got a domestic end date for coal, and, but we do have strong language about ending domestic government support for coal. So again, this is a track that is on the on route. So you can, you can imagine that come G20 and come further in, in the run up to Glasgow, mm. this will be some of the areas that we were looking to fill some of the, some of the detail around, and it is important that we do. Again, I mean, on the question about, I think that uh, Ross mentioned it on in terms of the BRI question. I mean, as I said, you saw a lot of photo ops this week and a lot of reiteration of declaration between Chinese foreign ministers and other, the Chinese foreign minister and others, the ASEAN ministers on this. I think the really important point here is that ultimately we are in desperate need in the world of different types of clean and green initiatives. And in some sense, it is important that we don't see that as an either or, it is all of the above. We need, we need offers that are genuinely clean partnership for developing countries. We also need the BRI to work because it is already happening. I mean, you know, however much we would like to pretend that it's not there, it is there. And last but certainly not least, I think that the Chinese government, as far as I understand from experts in China certainly saw that the announcement by the President Xi Jinping back in 2020, September on the 2050 target, it saw that as a gift to at least the UK if no one else for COP26 because it helped at that time kickstart, re-kickstart basically a round of climate diplomacy that got picked up again obviously when President Biden was elected. Now the baton picked up. So in some sense I think that the work in China will continue regardless at this point of G7 on the basis that 
the system, the skipper has blown the whistle saying that we are on, we're in. Everything we've been hearing from China the last six months have been about how they're translating some of these commitments into specific policies and measures. And the hope is that some of this could be translated into something more concrete. Now, I'm not, I don't know whether or not right now, looking at what's happening now, the prospect for China actually bringing a refreshed NDC or the National Determined, you know, new commitments domestically mm -hmm. to COP is necessarily on the cards just yet. I'm not entirely sure what we saw from G7 is encouraging of that at this point. But what we do know is that things are happening in China at the moment. And what we need to make sure is that all of them are happening in such a way that are providing strong, clean, green options, both domestically and internationally for obviously China and also all the countries with which it has bilateral and other clean development relationships. So I'm just going to stop there for now. No, that's that's really excellent. And I should have said to everybody, please do post your questions on Slido. But even better, if you see a question that you want me to put to our panel, uh, not clearly written quite as well as you would have done, but broadly addressing the issue, please upvote it because then we all know that that's the question that people want put. I want to turn first, um, first this question that both Beatrice and Nav mentioned about the sort of concrete actions 2030. It's quite easy. I know when I was in government and we were putting through the Climate Change Act, that ministers were quite relaxed about setting 2050 targets and indeed upping the level of ambition, particularly when they were told it didn't actually mean they had to do anything different. While they were in office, we had this interesting Swiss vote yesterday where the Swiss in a referendum voted down the Swiss climate law. We had what looked like relatively weak language on phasing out uh, diesel and petrol cars. Don't know whether Elisabetta can give us any hints of where that might have come from, uh, whether it was the UK, whether it was the EU, whether it was the US who might have weakened that language. But what needs to be done in terms of sort of these short run commitments? How far short are we of having a plausible plan to 2030? Who wants to come in on that? Beatrice, on the Beatrice, what, Beatrice, then Elizabeth, then Andy, what, what needs to be done? And then I'll to Johannes. If I may, Bernice, if it's okay, sorry. I'll be Bernice, sorry. But, yeah, sorry, that's okay. So, uh, sorry, I just want to sort of say that this, those were some of the tracks that I mentioned that were laid but not fulfilled. One of them indeed is the phase out date for internal inter, you know, combustion engine. Rumor is that it is Germany. The other one that is, the, the other one that is not happening, which we were hoping to see was basically decarbonized power sector from fossil fuel at least. But if by 2030, rumor there is Japan and possibly Germany, and whereas the UK is keen and the US as well, I understand. So, I mean, look, these are some of the tracks that I mentioned that were laid. So at least we don't know, we haven't got there, but we know where the battleground and new fault lines will be and something for G20. Sorry. Thank you. Yeah. So, Elizabeth, is there progress of more being done between now and, the, and COP26 to toughen up some of these commitments and actually have people bring forward, I'm going to come to Andy on the status of the UK government's plan, warn you Andy, um, to bring forward some actual real commitments as opposed to language, which is what we get out of summits. 
Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, thanks, Bernie, for doing the finger pointing, you know, who's behind the water mission, so I do that, that's great. Um, you know, when it comes to putting actions uh, on top of objectives, I think that we really did have uh, quite a bit of action between now and COP26, notably, you know, at EU level, mid-July is going to be this flurry of, of updated directives that precisely aim to bolster what is the 2030 objective with actual with an actual policy framework, so... Let's try and remove, for example, energy tax exemptions for, um, for, for, for certain types of fossil fuels, diesel, notably in certain sectors and aviation. Uh, let's try and set more ambitious objectives for, for the uh, rollout of renewables. Let's also put, possibly expand the application of carbon pricing to additional sectors of the economy to have uh, you know, more coherent um, and, and, and broader price signals uh, for, uh, for innovation to actually start taking place and boost a bit decarbonization where it has been lagging. So we will see all of that on the table at EU level in mid-July, but that's just the start, I would say, of, of a marathon that's going to take uh, you know, probably closer to a couple of years than, 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 less than that. But at least I think that will be helpful in you know, putting on the table the types of, of commitments and the types of Policy um, policy actions that the EU is willing to take collectively, and uh, and I think that's going to be useful uh, to, to set also a bit the the, the the target, the direction of discussions further on at the G20 level. I think this idea of, for example, removing implicit fossil fuel subsidies is something that was mentioned in the G7 mm -hmm. communique. But to practically do it, then you know you need to take policy action. And for example, this July package is going to be one concrete um, moment for, for this type of thing to, to actually be implemented. Andy, um, we've got a question here from John who um, has asked a few hours ago, what should the UK be doing ahead of Glasgow COP26 to show it's setting a lead to mitigate against climate change? So uh, the UK has, of course, submitted a very ambitious NDC, I think, on the advice of the Climate Change Committee and is about to vote into law the sixth carbon budget but is that enough? Does the UK have a plan to back up these ambitious targets? Well, I think in general, I think climate was an important part of the G7, but it certainly wasn't the most important part. Uh, if you look at the final communique, you see climate referenced some way down the final part of the document, somewhere along gender, but definitely well behind sort of corporate taxation, COVID and, and general um, economic uh, recovery. Um, I think the UK is in a really potentially powerful position as we move towards COP26. It's chairing the discussions. It's got a, I think Boris Johnson in particular has got a potential to, you know, present himself in a sort of cleaner, sort of greener sort of way. But on the key points that were identified in the communique specifically in relation to climate change, I think the UK is also, I think, uniquely vulnerable. So let me just quickly go through those. So one of the key commitments or expect, expectations was around climate finance. Um, all the final communique says is it just essentially reconfirms the, the G7's commitment to deliver that. It's uh, a commitment that's long been missed. This is tricky for uh, the UK, because the UK has just announced that it wants to reduce its overseas uh, development assistance. It's long been seen as a sort of trailblazer for um, meeting the long hell, long promise 0.7% uh, target. 
uh, on coal, um, the, the, the communique uh, commits to re, um, ending the funding of unabated coal by uh, the end of 2021. That's potentially also tricky for the UK because we've in the UK been discussing about the potential for a, the opening of a new coal mine only albeit to generally produce coking uh, coal for steel production. But nonetheless, uh, it, it seems to be something that's uh, phased the government. Uh, thirdly, on cars, uh, there was a fairly non-committal uh, commitment in the final communique to phase out fossil fuel uh, vehicles. There was no specific date mentioned. I think that's tricky for the UK because for a long time, the UK has held constant the level of, of taxes on fuels, um, that's a really tricky issue. Um, all the indications are that that's now stuck in the Treasury, and we're waiting for the Treasury to make a decision on that. And then finally on subs subsidies, uh, subsidies in particular for, for fossil-fueled uh, forms of economic development. And th there was a commitment in the final communique to end these by 2025. But at the moment, um, you know, you just need to look at the uh, tier funds recent, I think last week, analysis of the uh, funding that various countries have provided to uh, build back better. And in general, they provide more funding for fossil fuel based development than for greener forms of development. So there's, there's a potential vulnerability for the UK on that as well. So lots of campaigning opportunities for the NGOs, at least in the UK. Yes, and certainly a lot of people in our uh, in our Q and A are asking about what role civil society can play in bringing pressure onto leaders. Nav, where do you think? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I think I think one of the one of the sort of ways to approach this conversation, actually, uh, and to be a little bit heretical, mm -hmm. is to ask, well, look, you know do we really expect for like the G7 to be the place that drives national politics? Or is there a more subtle kind of interface between the way in which international fora like this, like these work and national politics? So I think I like Bernice's language of setting or laying tracks, right? So uh, let's take the fossil fuel subsidy question that, that Andy talked about. You know, the fossil fuel subsidy question was in fact this track was laid by the G7, if I'm not mistaken, a few years ago. Um, and it's led to conversations within countries. Uh, and it does create space for civil society to then, you know, forge advocacy campaigns and so on and so forth. Uh, but I think that it's a bit, um, I, I think it's, 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 it's unlikely that you're going to see the G7 uh, coming out with statements, definitive hard statements that run against the national politics in these countries, which is why we have we finger point uh, Germany on cars and uh, Japan on coal and so on and so forth. So I think I think you know maybe the the benchmark that we should be using is have we laid down some effective tracks and can we come back and revisit how far we've moved down those tracks periodically um, and 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 with the idea of sort of you know providing motive bar well opening doors and then providing motive bar uh, to shift domestic politics. Uh, because this issue is going to be actually settled by the aggregate effect of domestic politics in mm. key countries. Uh, so, so that's perhaps a, you know, a, a way of, of setting a benchmark that I think um, asks a slightly different question. Mm. Johannes, I mean, the US notoriously is relatively unkeen on 
international commitments interfering with domestic priorities. Maybe that's unfair to the US, but I don't think it's totally unfair to the US. And we know that the US on Kyoto was very concerned uh, that it was being obliged to take action, but there weren't similar obligations on others. We saw the Swiss saying, uh, I think one of the reasons for their vote going down yesterday was we're a very small emitter, so why should we inflict this pain in ourselves when it doesn't make much difference to the global climate, the classic collective action problem? Um, Does the sort of state of international commitments make a difference to the possibilities you were mentioning of President Biden being able to make headway with what is a very difficult Congress for him? And are there other options for the US if Uh, action at federal level stalls to actually sort of make progress? Yeah, so so this is a very good question to ask. Um, My sense is that at this point, international commitments will not have much impact uh, on the United States. And the reason for this is that the major impact of international commitment is to give ideas and kind of confirmation to those leaders who actually want to do these things. And but the Biden administration is easily the most pro-climate administration we've ever had in the United States. It's not even close. Uh, whereas the other side of the political spectrum uh, has no interest in these topics. So the way I would think about this is that at this point, the key thing in the United States really is, will the Biden admin be able to pass something meaningful on spending this year? Because if they're not, then we are already, first of all, beyond COP26, uh, and, and second of all, we will be uh, kind of on the runway toward the midterm Senate elections, which are going to be very, very difficult for the Democrats, because a lot of the, the races in those uh, elections have Democrats uh, kind of on the defense. And given that we are right now 50-50 in the Senate, it's entirely possible that the new Congress and uh, both the House and the Senate will be much less favorable to climate than it is today. And at that point, we would face another two years of basically nothing, right? So that's why I think in the United States, international commitments will have very little impact at this point because the the kind of pro-climate politicians are already convinced that they need to do these things. They share an ideology with with their European counterparts on how to approach this. Uh, And so that's why I think really the, the key thing here for the United States some of these other countries as well, is spending money right now when it's possible. We don't know where we are going to be in two, three years. It's possible that we cannot get anything done at that point. Uh, so let's spend money now on green things uh, while we have a window of opportunity. And Interesting, interesting. And does the bit sort of build back better agenda? I mean, this is a phrase used by Boris Johnson. It's a phrase used by Joe Biden, made its way into the communique. Does that framing actually sort of make any political weather in the US? Does it persuade, you mentioned, I think, Joe Manchin, who's a Democrat from West Virginia? Is he from West Virginia? Yep. He's Correct. cold Democrat, you might say. I mean, does this sort of framing, that this is all about opportunities and jobs, actually change anyone's mind in the US? So that's a great question. Um, I would say that, uh, it, first of all, it is the best available framing. I, I think it's much more effective than than any other alternatives uh, available uh, today. So I, I think it's a, it's a smart way to approach this. People are always interested in jobs, especially coming out of, out of the pandemic. So it's a, it's a natural way to link uh, kind of employment and uh, livelihoods 
uh, to climate. Uh, but at the same time, given the level of polarization, there's going to be a lot of places where it doesn't matter what kind of framing you use, right? You're not going to get a hardcore Republican to vote for Biden. It just doesn't have, it doesn't matter how you frame these things. The, the differences are just way too significant. And, and Manchin is a good example of this because the fact that he's in, uh, holds democratic office in West Virginia, which is the most Trump friendly of all states, is a political miracle, right? And it is to me not at all surprising that he's so hesitant to do any of these things because uh, the things could easily turn against against him. So I, I don't expect uh, any of his supporters, I don't expect many of the Republican core supporters to change their opinion, no matter what Biden says. But where it does help is consolidating the democratic base and getting some independence in the more competitive states. Now, we've got a question from Vijay, and I just wanted to know whether this sort of sentiment is widely shared and actually how you might start to get around it. VJ says, isn't climate change in COP26 just a way to keep rich countries rich and poor countries poor? How can developing countries develop quickly with new constraints? So you suggested the G7 is not the place to have that sort of conversation, but there is sort of perhaps some conversations to be had. What does actually a sort of, you know, climate friendly development agenda really start to look like and how do you actually get onto that track? Well, I think your uh, Vijay, if, if that's his name, you know, it really reflects a strongly held sentiment uh, among many segments of society, uh, certainly uh, in India. Uh, the sense that, look, we didn't cause this, this problem, certainly on a per capita basis. So if you look at the cumulative emissions, you know, India doesn't really stack up. Obviously, in terms of annual emissions, we are a billion plus people. So there's a fair number. Uh, uh, and therefore, the emissions add up on an annual basis. But why are you asking us to do this? An Indian negotiator very memorably put it this way. He sort of said, look, if there was a global famine, you wouldn't ask your average Indian to eat less because they're basically at, at starvation levels anyway. Why are we doing, why are we taking this approach with, with carbon, right? So that, that logic is, is very much, uh, very much uh, pertinent and it's very uh, widely held. Now, I think what has changed in India uh, and the reason why I think that that story is a little, uh, 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 little passe is um, the single biggest thing is the cost of renewable energy has come down to where it's competitive with coal. And so I think the fact that the poor countries, including India, need a lot more energy doesn't now necessarily mean that they need a lot more coal. Uh, and you can achieve a lot more things with electricity uh, as you manage to spread electricity as a technology through your, through your economies. Uh, so that's kind of one argument. Maybe you can de-link carbon and development a little bit. The second uh, argument that's winning some salience is look, the world is moving to a low carbon society. If you build your development on the back of carbon, you are going to be a technologically backward society in 10 or 20 years. And therefore it's not really in your interest. You're going to be increasingly uh, uncompetitive because your ability to compete is going to be dependent on technologies that are driving in the direction of a low carbon uh, future. Interestingly enough, the, the sort of impacts logic plays some role in that, that India is a highly vulnerable country, but it's not as powerful an argument because actually at the end of the day, if you worry about climate impacts, you're probably best served by developing as fast as you can so as to weather those impacts 
as best you can. Obviously, that argument only goes up to a point, but uh, but that's actually not driving the argument as much as these other economic arguments. So, so I think that the the the, the uh, and I, and finally the fourth argument is increasingly in, the, in India, politicians see their seat at the high table as being tied to being uh, pro climate action, and uh, both for visibility reasons, geopolitical reasons, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, they want to be at that high table. So I think I think. India is now firmly on board with a low carbon future, but the costs of transition and fa- the fact that the cost of capital is much higher in most developing countries means that we need a lot of support for that transition. So that's kind of the sweet spot where we are. Yes, politically, a low carbon future is something that is, is desirable, uh, but it's not going to be uh, with an equal responsibility to act and without some support from richer countries. Uh, so, about, I, so that's how I would nuance what Vijay says. And what about adaptation and resilience? Um, was there enough in the G7 about that? Because some countries are particularly badly exposed to you know, quite immediate effects from climate change. Look, not very far from India, Bangladesh or whatever, um, down yeah. to Indonesia. It's quite a lot of exposure. I don't know. Yeah. Did you expect to see more on adaptation? Is adaptation adaptation always seems to be the slightly sort of you know forgotten about bit in any climate action? Mm-hmm. I, I think I think you're right, and 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 once again, uh, it, it 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 is very muted uh, in this uh, in this uh, statement as well. But it, it kind of reinforces my sense that that really what we want to see is you know so, so the global collective action bits of it including adaptation or even more strongly loss and damage provisions uh, where countries are compensated for 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 damage to their economies and their societies is something that is going to be a very hard sell through international cooperation i just think it's it's probably uh, coming back to my earlier point about you know are we overloading statements like the g7 there are so many other developments in climate politics that we now not see to take, need to take much more seriously, right? For example, climate litigation. The fact that in country after country, you're seeing interesting court judgments uh, holding companies and uh, countries to account. The, I, I think we're having this sort of broader conversations in many more fora, which doesn't mean we kind of let the G7 off the hook, of course, but we look at how they can reinforce uh, the interactive effects across these different conversations a little bit okay. more. We've got a question here. Um about whether we really appreciate the links between, from Michael Freeman, about what are the principal human rights implications of climate change? Do we make enough of the linkages between climate change and human rights? Don't know who's, anyone keen to take that one on? Pass that one over. Uh, Anyone want to come back on that later, you can. Uh, Another question, which is, is there any prospect of an effective carbon tax? Um, Elizabeth, I think, mentioned the lack of mention of carbon pricing. We've seen sort of possible threats. We've got a reference to carbon leakage, which uh, we know the EU is thinking about a carbon border adjustment mechanism. Uh, is this going to be one of the things maybe that should come out of COP26? Um, Andy mentioned the UK's in- now, UK's now frozen fuel duty are quite high tax on uh, on uh, petrol and gasoline or wherever you are, uh, which has been frozen since 2009, despite the government committing to index it, uh, raise it in line with inflation. Uh, carbon tax, Andy, is there any prospect of a sort of international carbon tax or some 
big countries going their own way on that? I mean, yeah, I mean, in for a long time, the, the, the economists felt that that's what the world really needed, a sort of global carbon tax that everyone would sign up to. And it just proved to be impossible to, well, even calculate, let alone to, to implement politically, which is why over the last sort of 10 or 15 years, a sort of locus of policymaking has shifted gradually from the sort of, you know, the cockpits of sort of G7, you know, Brussels, uh, Whitehall, Westminster, down to the sort of city level, you know, down to uh, regions and and led to these different um, actors operating at different levels, sort of experimenting with things in different sorts of ways. So I think I think what's really interesting when it comes to carbon taxation, of course, is the rise of emissions trading uh, and the possibility that those can those trading systems can uh Link, link together. Um, I mean, there's, you know, you can see that the emissions trading system that the UK joined uh, as a member state, I mean, that's essentially survived and continues even despite mm. Brexit. I think the big question is, though, is how high will politicians allow carbon prices to rise before they feel that they have to start to intervene. I mean, the, the, the fuel price escalator was, was obviously one example where the politicians felt like the price had got too high. Um, another one to watch is the, the price of uh, emissions allowances in the new UK-based version of the emissions trading system. Uh, those, the prices are hot in that, uh, and there's a a feeling that if, they, if the prices start to become too hot, that it could put uh, the UK in particular, but I guess the EU more generally, at a competitive uh, disadvantage. So while while um, publics in things like citizens' assemblies say that they want to, um, they want politicians to lead, and they want uh, things like you know gas guzzling cars and, and too many foreign um, flights to be uh, restricted um, when it comes to well exactly what should voters do about that then I think that's where uh, the political uh, uncertainty starts to grow and I suspect that is what at the moment the uh, the treasury in the UK is wrestling with as it tries to produce and sign off on a on a, a sort of net zero uh, plan in time yeah. for COP26. We have a promised net zero review by the Treasury, which we have an interim report, but the full report is slightly missing in action at the moment. Um, yep. Memo to our Treasury colleagues, it be very interesting to see that before the vote on the sixth carbon budget, um, Rishi Sunak, if you're tuned in. Elizabetta, um, the EU has been making quite a lot of this. It's been talking about carbon border adjustment mechanisms. It's been doing that. And then I'm going to bring in Bernice. So, uh, is the EU actually going to manage to do something more serious about carbon pricing, or is it going to just uh, reduce allowances in its emission trading scheme? Where does it go next? I think there are several interesting you know, possible movements ahead, I think, in that space at EU level. The one around which most discussions are focused, I think, is the expansion of, of carbon pricing through emission trading scheme to um, consumer-oriented sectors, let's say. So that would be road transport and heating. And so, of course, um, that, that political decision comes with challenges, but also I think with, with a big advantage would be, which would be raise revenues 
through, through carbon pricing that can then be used to, to, to create a fund enabling uh, subsidization of things like, um, you know, uh, deep uh, renovations of housing that enable then the reduction of, uh, of energy consumption, that enable the electrification of road transport. So I think there is a way to not only sell in terms of marketing, you know, carbon pricing in these types of sectors, but also to make sense of that tool as a way that can help uh, raise the revenues needed to ultimately finance the energy transition. So I think that's that's going to be the discussion number one. Uh, it brings not only the, the, the necessary discussion around what are the distributional impacts of, of, of carbon pricing in these sectors across households, you know, within, within a certain country, but also within the EU uh, across member states, right? Because we're looking at member states which are much ahead in, in terms of decarbonizing their energy sector than others, and notably uh, Eastern European member states have been uh, very, very vocal against expanding the ETS to the sectors, or at least, you know, signaling that they might buy into this type of expansion as long as there is a substantial redistribution of revenues to precisely address what would be the distributional consequences. So I think that's, that's going to be, uh, from my perspective, the most important discussion in, in mid-July, once, once we see these types of discussions. And then, of course, the carbon border adjustment, um, you know, the, the ultimate shape it takes is also going to depend on when we will see the sunset of uh, the free allocation of, of carbon allowances for heavy industry, right? And that points to another type of distributional issue between notably households and, and industry. Households can't, you know, outsource their, their activities, whereas industry can at least threaten to do so. And so that's, I think, the, the big, I guess, weapon that the sector has in, in trying to convince the Commission to delay the, the type of step and to to keep their free right to, to pollute for the time being. I'm going to move to Bernice, but I just wanted to plug a very interesting explainer by my colleagues, Joel Reland and Sarah Overton, about the UK and EU emissions trading schemes on the UK and a changing Europe website. Uh, they looked at these, so you can have a very handy three, four page guide to those. Bernice. Thank you. Listening to everybody, I was just sort of reflecting that in a way we are where we are, obviously, because partly mainly because of the US, to be honest with you, <laughs> that we have a bottom-up system. And that actually means that we have all agreed that countries have to bring what they can to the table. And so what that really means in some ways is that we can be left dangling between G7 and COP26 in terms of trying to understand where the goalposts are, where the pathways are. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I don't worry too much about it, but it doesn't surprise me, therefore, that a country like Switzerland, which having lived there twice, would obviously wouldn't want these moving goalposts and, and its own shrinking share becomes a more important question. But the reality is that looking at climate action and defining a range of climate action is going to be about redefining the goalposts constantly and the pathways constantly and then moving them. But the lucky thing I was thinking, as Navros was speaking earlier, was that well, at least the good news is that the economics is on our side now in terms of the, both the renewables as well as the unattractiveness of the economics of coal. So the twin twin economics of coal versus renewables is helping us redefine the purpose, which brings us back to, in some ways, the US question that we had earlier, which is that maybe it is true that it is difficult to see how we can persuade Joe Manchin, uh, you know, on, on the sort of first principle basis. But what we do know is that a lot of the emphasis in the US as well is being put on for example, the role of the finance sector, and we see the snowballing of the effects mm -hmm. of the you know, task force on the disclosure 
of climate, you know, climate leaders, Scotia coming out of the G20, financial stability board, Mark Carney, and snowballing to different parts of the world. So in some sense, I was just sort of thinking a little bit about, well, that actually means that we have to really focus on how do we create these snowball effects in some in such a way that based on the tracks, in fact, we may be laying the snowball down the tracks that we want to lay down earlier on in order to achieve them. But that also brings us to the question about carbon pricing. I mean, right now it is quite clear that even if the EU would like to, and it certainly seemed like it did, want to implement some form of border carbon related measures. The challenge isn't necessarily just the politics, which is of course huge, but the challenge is gonna be a result of these bottom-up approach that we have, which is that we never really set out a way to, first of all, define carbon price equivalents for implicit carbon pricing, and therefore also how to therefore define equivalents. So even if you agree to charge them, it will be a long methodological fight. Now, the good news here, of course, is that the EU seems to me rather fearless when it comes to complexity in legislation. So hopefully the fearlessness of EU bureaucratic drivers in defining, you know, in going through, plowing through loads of numbers and methodology will actually help us get to the other side. But what I'm trying to say in a very long-winded way by now is that, well, it seems daunting, some of these challenges around defining equivalence, getting the politics right, getting economies right, but actually this is a system that governments agree to that got us to where we are today. And I certainly don't think that even when we were in Paris five years ago, getting 1.5 in, we would imagine that actually we would have language today. I mean, this is the half full person speaking right now, rather than the earlier half empty person. You know, we would never thought that, you know, come on, Australia is part of this communique committing to 1.5. I mean, you know, the half full person is saying, look, we are not there by any means, but you know what? Let's focus on getting those snowball effect down the tracks that we are trying to lay down. And perhaps it is not as terrible, however, however inadequate it is. But the one thing I would say that my half empty person needs to emphasize is that, that if the G7 countries, despite all the good things we've heard so far, so far, Canada doubling, Germany moving from four to six billion in terms of climate finance, we, if we must get that hundred billion situation sorted. Because if that is not the down payment for any possibility of success in COP26, I don't know what else it is. And so Bernice, that, that, that needs to be sorted by November. I mean, or well in advance of November. It needs to be clearly, you know, all the sorts um, of... Um, yeah, I would have hoped that UN General Assembly, September, would be a pretty good place to reconvene and really reiterate and really put some money on the table. Thank you. I'm just yep. worried about the extent to which if the EU went ahead with a carbon border adjustment mechanism, Navajo Johannes, I'm not sure whether either of you would like to come on this. I mean, is that just another bit of EU protectionism? I and mean, we've always been a bit suspicious of some EU trade policy. Uh, we're allowed to say these things from the UK now because we're not part of it anymore. Um, you know, if they bash cement, steel, one or two of these things, I mean, is, is there a risk that we get diverted into a bit of a trade war rather than actually focus on the main event of decarbonisation now. So, so if I could just come in on that, look, look I, I, you know, I uh, maybe just pulling the lens back a yeah. little bit, right? So uh, the conversation uh, uh, in the EU about border carbon adjustment mechanism as and 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 that's tied to, of course, whether or not you can have an effective carbon price. Because if you have a, a higher carbon price, the presumption is that there will be a lot more leakage 
Uh, and you know, for those those viewers who aren't familiar with the concept, simply that 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 in a sense you increase the cost of the EU. A lot of your manufacturing will move uh, offshore. Uh, what's interesting about this is at the moment there's really very little evidence of leakage. Uh, certainly in expo studies, as well as in modeling studies, the argument is always, well, if you have a serious carbon price, you'd have more leakage. But if you have a serious carbon price uh, and you have a serious border carbon adjustment mechanism, you'll have serious politics around it. And the question is, wh wh where do you, you know, wh wh what is the balance of emphasis that you really want to, uh, you know, where do you want to place uh, your, your scarce political chips in a sense? And I think if you pull back the lens, you're looking at a world where, the potential for changing emissions, uh, and I don't mean just reducing emissions, but avoiding increases in emissions, is greatest in Asia, Southeast Asia, and Africa. You want to make sure that these parts of the world, which are incredibly populous, do not lock into a high carbon future because it's much more costly to unlock that. So I actually think a lot of global uh, policymaking should be aimed at prioritizing locking in low carbon futures in these rapidly growing parts uh, of the world, and then accelerating the decline uh, in, in countries where emissions have already, already peaked. And this is, a, to bring in a slightly orthogonal point, this is a little bit of my, my, my fear about the net zero conversation. The net zero conversation doesn't look at that part of the equation that says, well, in countries where emissions are rising, how do you make sure that they peak faster and at a lower level than they currently. It's a kind of a prelude to the net zero conversation. That prelude conversation is what we should be having in, in many parts of the world. And it's not clear to me that carbon pricing is actually the way to avoid that lock-in. It's actually decisions made by governments about infrastructure, things like building codes, all those sorts of bread and butter things uh, are going to drive uh, those decisions. So if the price of higher carbon prices in Europe is a border carbon adjustment mechanism that um, uh, contaminates the politics of north-south climate uh, discussions, it's a pretty high price to pay. Interesting. How would a border cut, how would this be seen in the US, Johannes? Yeah, so, so um, I think the key thing to remember here is that if you have some kind of a domestic carbon price, then a border tax adjustment is not protectionism. In fact, it's quite the opposite of it. It's having an uh, same rules for foreign and domestic producers. So to me, the idea that you would blame the EU for protectionism when they are just asking foreign producers to play by the same rules is just wrong. That's just a factually incorrect take. For the United States, it's the opposite because the United States doesn't have any realistic prospect of a federal carbon price anytime soon. So if the United States had a carbon tax adjustment, it would be protectionist, right? It would be a way to give unfair advantage to domestic producers that don't need to follow these rules. So I think the, for the United States to talk about carbon price, I think is significantly more problematic, uh, sorry, a carbon tax adjustment is significantly more problematic than uh, for the European Union to talk about it. Because first you need to have the domestic rules so that your domestic producers don't get an unfair advantage out of it. I really don't think in the United States there's any way uh, we would have a federal carbon price. Some of the states will most likely move forward with some kind of carbon pricing schemes. But again, that is very different from having a federal uh, price. Uh, interesting, interesting, interesting. Now that is interesting. Um... So the US, if the EU had a high carbon price and 
sucked on a carbon border adjustment tax and affected US imports, the US would just say, US exports, the EU, the US would just say, yeah, sure, that makes sense. Well, I mean, they would complain, of course, there would be <laughs> tremendous lobbying against it and everything, but, but in the end, uh, they, they would have no legal basis, right? Because what people get wrong about the international trade law is that it's actually a really simple framework. There is only one rule, which is domestic and foreign producers must be treated the same way. There is no other rule in international trade law. So the, the U.S. can complain as much as it wants and it can make threats and all that. And maybe through the political channels, it will be able to challenge some of these things. But from a legal perspective, they have no case at all. Uh, okay, that's, better. that's a green light for the EU there uh, on carbon border adjustment tax. Um, Andy, we've got a question from Deirdre Henderson. Um, we talked a bit about the sort of north-south inequalities, but Deirdre Henderson, I'm going to interpret this question for her, is asking, are countries looking at in addressing inequalities with climate policies? We hear quite a lot of rhetoric about just transitions and doing that. Do you see any sign that anyone has sort of woken up to what an in-country just transition might look like, because we're talking about really quite big potential distributional changes and asking people who are relatively badly off to bear quite big adjustment costs if we don't do anything to mitigate those. Yeah, I mean, it's we, we often think about inequalities in a north-south dimension when we think about climate change. But of course, it's also really important to think about the sort of intra- sort of national dimensions of inequality as well. I think the Conservative Party, and particularly Boris Johnson in the UK, have, have, have certainly um, have seized on this. Um, as, you know, people, uh, as, as listeners who know the UK system well will know, um, one of the reasons why Boris Johnson did so well and won so many seats in the last election is he was able to win lots of... Uh, additional political support in some of the so-called left-behind uh, areas of, of, of the north of England, you know, areas that have over time been significantly uh, de-industrialised. And so I think the challenge that somebody like Boris Johnson has now is to somehow show that these areas can be that, that sort of net zero and building back better can help to transform those sorts of areas through, for example, the building of, you know, carbon capture and storage uh, plants through, for example, uh, the, the, the building of new wind turbines. But at the same time, um, that those um, gains are not going to be negated by, you know, the long-term decline of, of, of coal, of oil, think about Aberdeen, for example, uh, or of, of the fossil fueled parts of the car industry. And this is this is the, the real challenge, I think, that um, Boris Johnson and, and the Conservative Party in general now have to uh, really grapple with. Anyone would offer any country that they think has actually done more better thinking on this than anywhere else? Happy. Bernice. Yeah, I'm not answering your question, though, Julie. All oh, right, OK, that's fine. I, I was going to say, look, I mean, obviously, it is increasingly recognised that policies don't live in a vacuum, and therefore we have to do everything right at the same time, really, otherwise it will be knocked down. So this is a rather glib of basically saying, look, I mean, clearly, 
in any future design of climate policy and carbon policy, this increasing awareness of the importance of, for example, this distributional impact. And then you see a lot of studies in Germany and elsewhere looking at the distributional impact and how do you then redesign in such a way that also meets some of the goals that Andy was talking about. And the second part is that I think the just transition isn't just rhetoric on the basis that just transition is politics. It is also, it basically, it is the viability of climate policy. So I think that because now there's a much stronger recognition of the viability hinges on obviously social impacts and equality related dimensions. That means that actually, I cannot imagine thinking about climate policy without thinking of these dimensions anymore. So this is something that we're all doing together. We're all starting doing together. So I don't know whether or not it is easy to point to countries that know better than others yet. But what we do know is that there are, for example, trade adjustment mechanism, we talked about trade policy, that has been going on for years, in, certainly in the EU, but certainly in NAFTA, there are provisions around, you know, obviously long-term adjustment, and none of them actually ever get done well from lots of different sectors, even though they're not necessarily climate related. So I think it is definitely time for us to all academics among us, and there are quite a few here, should definitely be the one who help us gather the right lessons learned from different types of adjustment processes over time and really figure out what, what that might be, because we do know that that is critical to long-term success of any climate policies going forward. Excellent. If I could just, if I yeah. could just jump in uh, on that. Um, uh, I think one of the things we've also learned, uh, as Bernie said, there's no doubt that distributional issues are, you know, have to be woven into how we think about climate policy making. Um, but with that also then comes this, this realization that, uh, uh, policies are going to be deeply context dependent because politics are different in country after country, which is exactly why the global coordination story uh, 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 then, then has to be kind of also confronted with the fact that you have country by country uh, uh, policymaking approaches. So in one country, if, if carbon pricing is the way to go, in another country, it may be really about job creation and manufacturing incentives and more of an industrial policy strategy and so on and so forth, right? So these, these, these two things don't often sit that easily together uh, in a world where you have the Swiss saying, look, you know, why the hell should we go ahead when the rest of the world isn't moving as fast? So, 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 so it's an equivalence question comes back here. How do you, how do you actually make sure that, that you give due recognition to countries uh, and you have some way of comparing countries when countries might be on very different uh, uh, sort of policy pathways depending on national context? Uh, so climate policy making just got a lot more complicated than the, than, the, than the sort of the economist fantasy world of 15 years ago, where we all have a price and we ratchet it up over time. I just want to make it slightly more complicated yet. Uh, none of you wrote the debate on human rights, but I wanted to link to uh, wider environmental impacts. I think we saw uh, briefly on biofuels that what appeared to be a good climate policy or indeed on diesel actually had bad environmental, wider environmental externalities. We also have the big uh, biodiversity meeting summit later in the year. We've got some language in the G7 communique about biodiversity, land conservation, and things like that. Are we convinced we've got the right framework for tackling climate change without negative environmental side effects? Um, we got the right policy-making framework. We've got a few questions in the uh, in the Q&A on that. Who would like to pitch in there? Elisabetta, very brave. 
maybe just trying to, to think a bit out loud there. <laughs> I think, and uh, you know, we've been pointing out the negative aspects of the G7 communique, but one thing that I thought was quite positive was the acknowledgement precisely of the fact that there needs to be closer connections between climate change mm-hmm. action and, and biodiversity protection. And, you know, this perhaps equaled the, 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 the report that came out late last week saying that we cannot tackle these two challenges in, in, you know, in independently. And on the other hand, we need to consider them jointly. And there, I think, again, it's fairly marginal, but the fact that we start to see mentions of nature-based solutions, for example, as adaptation, um, you know, solutions to, to, to climate change, I think is, is a good thing. And it, it you know, it's, it's a concrete uh, aspect showing us that indeed adaptation is, is more and more on, on the agenda in this type of meeting. One, one you know, concrete example of how uh, climate action and at the, at the same time do, do no significant harm to, to other environmental parts of, of our ecosystem is being implemented is, for instance, in the context of the European recovery package, the big pool of money that's being dumped on, on countries to, to support the recovery, there are both criteria at play, right? On one hand, countries are asked to spend a big percentage of this money on uh, climate action and and making their economies more resilient to that while paying attention to uh, not endangering the environment in other ways. Now, that might be a cheap uh, one-liner to put in 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 the set of criteria that countries have to respect, but I think it's a significant one uh, because that that, that had not been the case before. So that to me signals a a step change in in that type of thinking. Bernice. Yeah, thank you. Very much in the same vein, building on what Elizabeth had just said. I mean, look, I mean, as I said earlier, we can't afford to do things twice because, you know, there is a lot to be done. And this also applies, obviously, to the nature implications of, for example, climate policies. And this is where in the world where we can't afford to do things twice, this also means that the integrity of what we do, especially when we haven't quite figured out how to calculate equivalence, is extremely important. And this is where I want to sort of bring in the carbon markets piece and certainly the, the, the piece around net zero that Navros and Andy and Elizabeth all have pointed out to you and Jonathan as well. I mean, look, I mean, you know, where we are at the moment is that we have a net zero commitment. We need to make sure that it is, you know, has integrity, some of which will be about offsets. And especially the offset piece around nature-based solution will be about will be as much about integrity of those projects as it is the carbon content as well as others. So this is a chance for us to connect these regimes in such a way. For example, for this G7 declaration on the 30 by 2030, which I thought was very positive that is in there, we need to make sure that they are delivering together. So for me, it comes back to the question of, you know, in the end, with a bottom-up system, integrity and quality is extremely important. And this is where we can make sure that the co-delivery of climate and nature related benefits should be more strongly linked together than before. And this is now a chance as well in COP26 for us, if not going in, because we don't know what may happen in Kunming, because that is gonna be a virtual summit and it's gonna be quite likely to be disappointing from all the expectation management that is coming out of the Kunming out of the summit so far that folks are not so positive. Hopefully coming out of COP26, therefore, that we will have a stronger tie as well on the other end between strong climate action and strong nature related safeguards that will come out of that. So, I mean, again, half, half full person coming out now. So, you know, that, that's what I think something to look forward to that we are, the more we are aware of these challenges, the more likely that we can try to solve them together in a more coherent way is the hope indeed.
Okay, I'm going to use the last five minutes to do a rundown to COP26. Uh, quite a lot of scepticism, a few people noting that we've had quite a lot of um, conferences before. Rio Earth Summit was, I make it, 29 years ago. Um, that might not be quite right, but I think it was. Uh, which is scary for some of us who were knocking around uh, then. Um, question from Anthony Carey. What would be the best achievable COP26 outcome? And is the UK setting about it with enough energy specificity and preparatory work? Well, let's be more helpful. If you were advising Alex Sharma, the UK's COP president, Boris Johnson, what would be your one piece of advice on what they need to ensure that those tracks that Beatrice has been talking about, is that we get as far as possible as we can down those tracks that have been helpfully laid out of Carbis Bay going up to Glasgow, which is actually probably a pretty terrible journey to be making on UK public transport. Johannes, what needs to happen between now and COP26? And does it make a difference? Um, Bernice was just mentioning the virtual Kunming Summit on biodiversity. Does it make a difference if, uh, if it's done virtually or if it's everybody getting together as we've been seeing this weekend in Carbis Bay? Yeah, so, so just very briefly, I, I think to me that the most important things really, we, we have to get this climate finance situation under control because otherwise we'll lose most of the world um, in this process. And then uh, second thing is I, I do hope there's going to be some real accountability where the countries are asking each other, uh, where's your NDC and uh, what do you plan to do next? How do you plan to spend money? I think that's the best that the Paris Agreement can, can do uh, do for, for us here. Uh, I think in-person is, is much better than virtual uh, for diplomacy, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Elizabeth. Uh, yes, much uh, better. Elizabeth. I would equal Johannes. I think uh, don't even enter the room without the climate finance situation sorted out well, well beforehand. It's, it's a prerequisite. Uh, and I think the other thing is, you know, it's nice to say that the G7 countries are going to end uh, the finance of, of coal power plants uh, abroad, but then they shouldn't leave a void. So I think one thing to do before then is to make steps forward in terms of supporting uh, the, the investment in renewables in developing countries. Because otherwise we're just, you know, ending support as we know it and then just leaving developing countries to figure it out by themselves, which is not what we need. Bernice. Uh, definitely money and new money, definitely. Second part, don't ignore the negotiations. We have to complete that definitely, especially on transparency, and, you know, obviously, but definitely transparency. And I would say, look, if we want to live to fight another day, which we do, then the, the, the sort of very, very, very unlikely but dream event would be that we actually set some more climate ambition Go post again for the 2020s. So even further. Navros. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll second, third, fourth, whatever it is that we're <laughs> up to with the finance uh, point. Um, but I would go a little bit beyond that, which is let's, let's, let's beyond the mobilization of climate finance, let's get into this conversation about how do you harness all the vast sums sitting with pension funds and so on and so forth. Uh, for economies that have faced high costs of capital, some of those more structural things around around, around finance. I, I, look, I think I think asking for more and stronger NDCs, and I'm avoiding the word ambitious on purpose because I think when we talk about NDCs, 
we really need to be asking, what are you doing in the short run? Don't tell us about great things you'll do in 30 years from now. So give us the short run stuff. And to put something new on there, uh, what domestic machinery are you building? We just don't talk enough about domestic institutions, laws, and so on. So Paris has this whole ratchet mechanism. Most countries don't actually have the domestic institutional machinery to ratchet up their NDCs. It's all ad hoc. They lurch from cop to cop. So even something as simple as that, build the machinery at home where you're having a systematic conversation and building year after year on your climate policy. Even that would be a good uh, advance as part of an NDC. So Andy, the domestic machinery is one area where the UK, to use the Prime Minister's favourite yes. phrase, is genuinely world-beating. Uh, it is. Uh, so we're probably quite strong on doing that. What would be your final bit of advice to Alex Sharma if he calls you up tomorrow and says, what do I do now? Sorry, before Andy answers, can I just say I'm astonished that the UK is not leveraging the Climate Change Act and the Climate Change Committee and saying, look, we actually have something that works pretty well. Why aren't you guys thinking about this? Sorry to interrupt, Andy. But. All right. No, well, that's a very good positive note to go over. Andy, baton pass to you. Yes, the, 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 the much-fabled Rolls-Royce coordination machinery. Um, but no, seriously, I think it has to be policy delivery at home. Um, I think delivering on proper strategies and policy plans for things like domestic heat, for hydrogen, for uh, transport, uh, for, for housing. These things will give the UK's uh, chairing of COP26 much, much greater credibility. Um, and crucially, though, if you want to sort of lead in those sorts of areas, these are the sort of areas that really touch everyone's everyday lives. So it's about taking the public with with the politicians rather than leaving them behind or you know using the you know the rather old-fashioned ways of, of consulting where you put out a proposal and then you know the, the the great and good reply and everybody else just doesn't even know anything's happening so it's got to be about taking the public uh, forward with, with the politicians and and there I think there's some really important uh, lessons that can be learned from the climate assembly in the UK, perhaps you know a, a series of rolling or ongoing climate assemblies uh, might be one way to uh, to keep the public informed, so that the politicians really have the confidence that they're really representing the publics when they're making these really momentous decisions. Okay, so it comes back to domestic action. Uh government please note so with that i'm going to draw this to a close thank you all so much for being phenomenal panelists thanks everybody for posting all your questions on slido i'm sorry if we didn't uh, didn't get to all your questions i think we covered most of them she says hopefully please do the survey because this is a bit of a branch out for us at uk and changing europe because you haven't done anything specifically on climate before and we're very interested to know um who came and whether we pitched this right and things like that. But uh, join me virtually in thanking our phenomenal international panel, Andy, Bernice, Elisabetta, Navroz and Johannes. Uh, thank you all so much. That was a great discussion. Thank you.